This episode of the Filmmaker Toolkit podcast is sponsored by House of the Dragon. For your awards consideration, Max presents House of the Dragon. Set 200 years before the events of Game of Thrones, the reign of House Targaryen begins in the HBO original series, starring Patty Considine, Matt Smith, Olivia Cook, Reese Evans, and Emma Darcy. Do not miss the series that critics are calling a roaring success. House of the Dragon is now streaming on Max. Hi, y'all. Welcome to the Filmmaker Toolkit Podcast. My name is Sarah Shackett. I'm a writer over at IndieWire, and I cannot stop thinking about the fourth season of Succession. I think that I am going to be coming back to the show a lot in the future. So I was delighted that we were able to have back on this show, Succession director and executive producer Mark Mylod. He may say that he is only 1% responsible for what works on Succession, but he, in fact, has put in a Gojo Waystar amount of effort to evolve the series visually into something that feels both jagged and poignant, hilarious, and deeply tragic. I think this is Mark's third time on Toolkit, actually, which officially makes him a friend of the pod. But we got into some of the questions behind the immediate ones of the end of the, the series and season finale. We talked a lot about the, the challenges of putting the show together this season in post and not tipping Succession's hand too early or too often. Uh, we talked about the intentionality that happens when you shoot something on film stock uh, and Succession's evolution to sort of maintain that as it got more ambitious in season four. We talked about Succession over all four seasons um, and what the series has gotten out of particular locations this year. Much, much more. Um, it is a wide-ranging, enriching conversation that will make you want to start the series all over again. So please enjoy this conversation with director Mark Mylod. I would love to start first, just congratulations um, on the end of on the end of this journey. And I, in preparation for this, I went and rewatched like the first couple episodes of season one when McKay was setting the template for it. And you can see the the DNA for what Succession would become, but it looks it actually looks quite different and feels quite different from from where we are in season four. Um, and so I would love to ask you kind of what were the the episodes along the way in in season two season three and season four that really solidified what the show's visual language does emotionally it's funny isn't it that the, how you get any group of people together um through various seasons of television and inevitably the show becomes a, a, a symbiotic cocktail of everybody um you know we started obviously in such a strong place with Succession, with that brilliant pilot, an incredible script and such beautifully defined, loathsome characters right from the off and that brilliant, you know, bold and bombastic shooting style from, from Adam uh, and that incredible casting from everybody, especially led by Francine Mazer. Um, um, so we had, you know, such a brilliant blueprint for the series going forward. I, I remember watching that pilot and, and you know, particularly around that time, you know, 2017, uh, when I got involved, um, you know, Trump had come to power uh, and it felt like if, if ever anything was really in the zeitgeist, the show was that um, a brilliant happenstance of timing. Um, and then I suppose 
as we got into the show. I mean, my reason, I think, for getting involved in the first place, or my curiosity, apart from the brilliance of of the casting and, and of course, Jesse's incredible writing talent, was really a, a genuine curiosity about those characters. I, I was fascinated that a pilot could be where could have characters who are so irredeemably awful and yet still compelling, which I thought, you know, how how long can we sustain that? At some point, we have to peel back layers and find vulnerability. We have to find context for their behaviour. We have to find something deeper. Otherwise, I, I don't believe that a hate watch can necessarily sustain over multiple seasons. So, and and, and that's exactly what I think our exploration became over most part. Of course, there were those huge layers of, of the nature of power, um, of, of the nature of toxic family. There's a million things that the show is about that are all well documented. For me, it became about trying to find context and trying to find a genuine human connection with those characters, which I did. Um, and, in and of course, with that and, and me obviously being an EP on the show as well and directing a number of episodes each season, between all of us, by extension, the visual style began to kind of mutate and evolve also. If I had to name specific episodes that stand out in my head as of pushing that forward, episode six in season one was a huge one for me. Andrej Parak, who was the DP of the, of the pilot and has and subsequently become a very good and very successful director. In fact, he won an Emmy for season two for, for the ball on the floor hunting episode. Um, um, that episode was the first, in my opinion, truly kind of great, um, if you like, uh, uh, um, succession episode because he he found a way to just to crank up the tension, uh, which had hitherto not been a trademark of the show necessarily. Um, we, we really kind of whetted our appetite, blooded the show with that appetite for excruciating tension there, which became, you know, later such an integral part of the DNA of the show. So that was important. Um, and, of course, uh, uh, of course, Andrej was so much a part of the original visual style of the show, being the DP for the pilot. Um, the end of the season, the last two episodes of season one um, of the wedding at East North Castle in the UK, that's where, for me, on a purely personal note, that's where I kind of found the show directorially for me. I, I found in my own head, something there clicked in properly with Jesse. Um, and uh, and we, we found our way toward the collaboration together where we were kind of of one mind. And that sounds a bit um, glib or pompous, but uh, as, uh, that's the best way I can describe it. And that just continued. No, it's, it makes sense when you both yeah, see yeah, it. Yeah, and, and, and because the scope of that and uh, um, of that event uh, of Shiv and Tom's wedding was such, I, I found a scope and I found a way that in my own head I could balance the, the scope and grandeur, I suppose, of their world without sacrificing intimacy. In fact, a, a, a way to balance those important elements together. So that was huge for me. An episode one of, sorry, episode 10, season one is still right up there my kind of top three episodes um certainly directorially um for, for, for my own work um but but also in terms of just the intensity of the uh, of the experience 
in season two, Turnhaven was huge for me. Um, the 22 people around a dinner table for um, for most of the episode. I, I Again, selfishly, I, I got the chance to kind of channel my inner Robert Altman um, and just in love with his work, you know, particularly Gosford Park, which had been such a touchstone for me especially, uh, but I think also for Jesse in, um, in our version of what the show should be. Um, that was a great experience. Again, in terms of cranking up tension, the last couple of episodes there, particularly on the on the boat in Croatia and that lovely moment of the, the, the press conference at the end of the season was great fun, obviously. Um, season three, the last two episodes, is what stands out, really. Um, we'd really honed our appetite for for not shying away, almost a kind of sadistic eye and lens on the tragedy of the siblings by then and particularly in that last episode in in italy um that felt like everything that that the show does well and uniquely it was almost a kind of zenith of that for me um season four connor's wedding um was a new kind of boldness i thought emboldened and determined again i'm really speaking purely directorially here um in uh, in Connor's wedding, the, the determination that Jesse and I have always felt in with each new season to at least attempt to raise the bar, at least to keep up with you know the perceived success of the previous seasons, to to build on that, to never get complacent. Um, so just trying to keep pushing it as much as I possibly could for every nuance, for every for every gram of 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 weight around those characters. Um, and, and Connor's wedding offered up this opportunity because of the intensity of the writing and the immediacy of it to, to a new technical challenge, really. It's how long can I run a take? I, I, by now, my relationship with the cast had evolved to such a place of, of, kind of, uh, of, of trust um, that I knew what they were capable of and what they might benefit from in any given hyper-emotional situation. Um, and it seemed to me that, that we had to try to run a, a very long 28, 30 minute section of that in one go, which with film cameras, uh, as I think I've spoken about before, is tricky because you have to run, reload them every 10 minutes. But we evolved a way to do that um, with, with quite an elaborate system of hiding magazine, camera magazines, reloads around uh, around the set. And, uh, and myself and Patrick, the brilliant director of photography I work with, um, we evolved a way to achieve that over multiple layers of a boat filled with hundreds of background people and um, and give the cast the benefit of that unbroken run of performance, uh, so much of which made the final cut. I had, I had the pleasure of um, talking to Patrick a little bit and you pulled, a, not not for quite as long a take, but pulled a similar trick during the funeral in episode nine, right? It, it, exactly. Are you f just freeing yourself from digital now? You can just... Uh... Kind of. <laughs> reload film as you like yeah it's funny you know, I was just having a meeting about uh, just doing a budget for uh, for another project I might get involved in down the line um uh, but, and, the, and and the biggest question on the, on the budget line for me was you know film or digital I'm addicted to, to film stock and everything that it does beyond the aesthetic but also something to do with the, the channeling and the focusing of of energy and focus of performance knowing that you've got that you know maximum thousand foot of film stock there's something Brilliant, you know. There's the great, you know, hallelujah uh, with 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 digital. With great, we can run for thirty minutes without stopping, and that that can be brilliant, of course. But it can also, 
it can also breed a you know a slackness i suppose if if one doesn't use the tool correctly um but yes as you say it did embolden us throughout the rest of the season and particularly when it came to episode nine to to, to logan's funeral where you know emboldened creatively and seeing the benefits to the cast um of running those longer takes but there was also a very prosaic and uh, necessity there because we had such limited time with the availability of this beautiful church um that only had a couple of days to shoot a massive massive amount of work um so i just had to go back to my kind of multi-camera television comedy days and just think okay the only way to do this is to treat it like a live event and what would we do if Logan were a real human and we were going to cover his funeral and and kind of treat it like that. So from the moment that the hearse pulled up at the church to the moment that the casket was put back into the hearse to go to to, to the cemetery, we ran that as a, as a live event several times over a couple of days, but, and, you know, really getting the rawness of the performances, particularly Kieran's amazing performance and Sarah's uh, and Jamie and Jamie's, of course, um, really on the first take um uh so yeah it, we we were emboldened by that and that felt like another you know late stage evolution in in and, and i suppose the other and in general over the four seasons what i'd felt instinctively gradually came into focus as a as a creed uh, uh, um as that okay the cameras here and and by extension the edit rhythms are about us the audience trying to keep up with events without anticipating them but barely keeping up and that's why as adam had 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 set out in the pilot this idea that the framing will often be imperfect that we will cut late to a moment that we won't anticipate a moment um and sometimes we're going to a much more kind of classical flow of uh, of you know cameron dolly in a much more classical move when when the moment feels right. But just uh, just putting into words this idea of we're barely keeping up. We have no control over these events, so that we just have to try to keep up with them. That that felt like a good creed for us. It's perfect for a Jesse Armstrong show where the characters are, you know, and this has been consistent a- across his work. It, it's wild that it has been from like peep show to now, but it's true. They're, the, the, his characters are often out of their depths and and barely keeping up. And it is interesting to hear you Talk about sort of the episodes where things came into focus or, or, or where sort of the show took stylistically, because I think what you found in a lot of those cases was water. Mm. Yes. Isn't it funny how, yeah, how recurring a motif that became? Yeah. I would love to hear you talk about that in the context now that we we sort of know ultimately where we leave Kendall. Yeah. it um A lot of it is just scripted, actually. Uh, I, you know, 90% of the great things in succession are because of Jesse Armstrong's typing. Um, and, uh, you know, I'll take credit for about 1% of the rest of the stuff and the cast get the other 9%, I think. Um, um, nobody else gets anything. Um, the, <laughs> um, yeah, after, obviously, the the end of season one with Kendall's nightmare, you know, part of that, the tragedy for that character is that he is forever haunted by that event he can never escape it in the same way that he can never escape the gravitational pull of his supposed birthright. And um, I, 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 and so whenever we want to put that character under pressure, we would often write him in close proximity to water. Um, so, um, and, and then we even found, you know, an opportunity to, 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 to have a cathartic moment with water, that beautiful Lorene episode, episode six in season four, um, out in LA, where the character strips off and goes into the water, kind of uh, freeing himself 
from um, from that burden, albeit temporarily, of course, it came back uh, like a boomerang and hit him in the back of the head pretty hard. Um, yeah, it did become a deliberate visual motif throughout um, important episodes of the show. Yeah, it is so interesting to to see it evolve from something where, you know, you have in your head, okay, this is a character who is so insulated by money that he associates water with death mm. as opposed to life. Yeah. And then you get into season four where it is rejuvenating, but only up to a point. Mm. And I'm curious about the night scene in, in episode 10 of this season, because he gets what he wants on the water. Yeah. Um, mm-hmm. With <laughs> with Kieran and Sarah uh, swimming around him and saying "smile, bitch." Yeah, yeah, it's the ultimate catharsis for the, 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 the for the for the character, you know, or, or so we thought. Um, that that whole sequence I call the cruelty of hope. Um, then that we spend so much of, uh, you know, that first half of the the finale episode, setting up this tantalizing. Yeah, ultimately futile attempt. You know, to, to uh, attempt at actually giving the characters a happy ending um, be, before their essential natures, of course, sabotage that with, with an absolute finality. Um, but there was something, yes, in terms of actually bringing Jeremy's character to an absolute zenith of happiness. This is happy Ken. Um, yes, to actually give him what he thinks he wants in a place that ultimately. In a, in a in a in an environment that had be that had always represented death for him hitherto, um, um, was the ultimate catharsis and wish fulfillment for the character on the surface, um, uh, and in the same way that we absolutely refute that with with the absolute finality of their humiliation at the board meeting, how public that is through those glass walls. Um, there's uh, the the more happiness we gave them in Barbados, the more absolute abject misery we had to pile onto them um, in balance to that, to find the emotional truth of that journey. Absolutely. I love that night scene also because they're in Barbados, but you cannot see how beautiful it is. Whereas when, when Kendall is, is in Battery Park, it looks gorgeous. Mm. But I'm curious what you get out of going to these gorgeous places to document these characters feeling so miserable? What What is important about locations on succession? What's important is to walk a tightrope of accurately reflecting the lives that these characters live as best we can. We have a very lovely budget through generosity of HBO, but, you know, but we don't have a billionaire's budget, of course, and so we have to cheat. Um, but we do our best to, you know, to spend our budgets very wisely for maximum impact um, on the screen. And on whether it be Croatia, Barbados, Italy, uh, Iceland, Norway, or all these wonderful places that we've had the benefit of shooting at over the years. Um, in each case, we try, I certainly try very hard to document the location and the beauty without fetishizing it. Um, and that's tricky to do. I, I tend to do it through the very specific mechanism of if I want the camera to pass over a beautiful view, um, something gorgeous, I will try to get it so that an actor, a character walks in that direction, thereby pulling the camera there. So, so I don't, so the camera is not salivating over it as a kind of POV, it, it has to it has to pass by that because that's where the character is, and that's how I try. And also, 
you will hopefully notice that very rarely, in fact, I can't think of any time where our characters will ever be somewhere beautiful and go, wow, isn't this beautiful? Um, they completely take it for granted and, and therefore the camera tries to do that as well. They just happen to be there. Uh, and whilst we mortals may be going, good Lord, that's crazy lovely, they completely take it for granted and barely ever look out the window of where they may be. No, it's it's one of the essential contrasts of the show is sort of the the lushness of their surroundings, but the smallness of their wants and needs and desires. It is always a balance, isn't it, between the scope of a, of a location and the intimacy of those moments. And that, that was a specific challenge in Barbados in the last episode, in that we wanted and needed them to be there to have this, you know, uh, uh, again, this tantalising breadcrumbs of... Uh, of of a, of a potential happy ending for them and to bring them as close as, as we've ever seen them, really. Um, so it had to be this beautiful place. But there's also a real intimacy to those scenes, um, which, again, on the value of a... If anyone does watch again, can take on a, a, a different sheen, a different tone, a, you know, something that can be bold and positive on a first viewing, on a second viewing, can be claustrophobic and slightly cloying, I hope. Um, a, a, a tonal moment that always stands out in my head because it's part, I think, of the way Sarah modulated her character's arc through the finale episode is there's a quite a bold shot of her approaching, walking down the corridors of Waystar to the board meeting. And the first time you watch it with Nick's brilliant score, um, it feels positive and... Uh, and uh, and let's do this. Um, and you watch it a second time and you realise that it's crumbling doubt and bricks tumbling in her mind. Um, and uh, No, she looks terrified in that shot. Mm -hmm. There's a beautiful ambiguity to that, I think. I would love, since since you brought up uh, the wonderful Nicholas Bertel, it seems like, I mean, his score for season four is extraordinary, but it seems like in post, you guys are using music in an interesting way to head fake the audience a little bit towards potential outcomes for, for how the, the Waystar Gojo deal mm. will go. And I would love to hear you talk about sort of the challenges of post this year and sort of the role that music plays this season. It's such, it's become such an important tool. It's so diminishing, isn't it? Um, uh, uh, part of the, uh, uh, of the show. Um, from the very start, <laughs> from the moment that Nick sent in this extraordinary demo, um, and then there was a couple of notes went back and he came in with the, what turned out to be the kind of final version of it, which had that kind of hip-hop kick to it underneath it, which was just... I remember just listening to it the first time and thinking, good God, where did that come from? It's extraordinary. Um, so he'd set himself up from the very start as such a massively integral part of the whole, beyond, you know, any kind of score that I can possibly think of you know so we've there's been some great theme tunes in you know incredible theme tunes in, in drama television history but I, but as a part of the whole of the part of the whole storytelling nuance and balance of it, I, I i think it's absolutely extraordinary and for me absolutely unique in that so he's so much a part of it and he comes in with his own point of view we'll send him the cuts and he'll uh, and nick will work he'll speak much more eloquently on this himself um uh, but he'll come in with a very specific point of view, but we all come from the same place in that in our storytelling, we can never overtly leave the audience, not even not even to trick them. You know, we don't want to be cheap. We don't want we want to play the emotional truth of any moment, even if that means sometimes really underplaying what can be a really important moment. Uh, 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 when we do go into 
full Nick Bratel, bombastic, extraordinary, operatic beauty. Um, we, you know, we have to make sure we damn well earned it. And and that's, you know, and for me, that final sweep that he does um, it, at the end of the finale is the absolute zenith of his of his talents and his contribution to the show because I find it mind-boggling. I, I don't have the language for, for what that piece of music does. It's absolutely incredible. That and seeing the slowness and the limpness with which Matthew turns his hand open <laughs> are both like so... <laughs> expressive beyond language i can't i i need a master's degree for this um <laughs> i don't have in terms of not leading people on or 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 sort of putting things in there that are, are not in the emotional truth of a scene i'm curious how that makes you think about the tonal balance of season four where you know succession has always been this wonderful tragic comedy mix but we we dip definitively down towards tragedy and i'm curious if there's like a, a a heaviness or a change of pace or 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 anything that sort of you experienced putting the final episodes together i think um certainly more emotional weight um which um which was a bear trap for us potentially we had to be very careful that we didn't allow in any element of the creative input of the show uh, whether it be writing, performance, directing, uh, our editing choices, um, uh, and, and extending into score, of course, um, not to make what I think we all agree would have been that mistake of actually kind of marking the end of the show. Um, uh, as soon as we played it like it was the end of the show, then we we undermine you know our whole creed of emotional truth in any moment because just because we turn our backs on these characters, these characters continue, or not, by their choices. Um, um, uh, uh, and therefore, you know, when a character leaves frame for the last time, when we're shooting that, we're, of course, so weighed down with the emotion of the moment and the playing of it because we've all worked so closely for the past six years together. Um, but in the treatment of it, we have to stay cool and laser focused um and stay with the cold hard truth and as the stakes obviously the, well let me go back on that you know season four we gave ourselves a, a challenge we had not before in, in, with this idea that the season would take place over 10 12 days um and uh and in doing so that put an additional squeeze, an additional pressure on the characters because they're having to process so much um, in such a short period of time um, with obviously trying to process the grief, grief over Logan's death with also trying to save, you know, their, their destiny, their, to save their company. And that's extraordinary pressure to put the characters under. And of course, you know, that pressure, that tension you know, it is also a great catalyst to comedy as well. One can, you know, release um, tension with comedy, which we do, you know, a lot. As we, of course, when we get to episode nine, to to the funeral, of course, there's going to be a weight to that. That's just the truth of it. When we get to episode 10, to the finale episode, of course, the weight of the impending board meeting and the importance of that and the scramble um, to, to try and shore up their defences and, of course, the whole 
Voldfast that that Shiv has to do to try to take the least bad option, you know, in terms of switching alliances by necessity. These are huge swings that the characters are going through. Um, so of course they're going to feel weightier, and therefore that balance between you know drama, tension, and comedy that that seesaw is going to to pivot a little. Um, we still find space for that, of course, with with the levity of Meal Fit for a King and uh, and the. the perambulating uh, circuits of, uh, of Logan's apartment, courtesy of Alan's character. Um, but fundamentally, of course, uh, it, the, the tension is going to crank up. There's a wonderful moment, not of comedy, but of sort of lightness and tenderness in the, in the perambulations when we see the meal with Connor and Logan and, and all of our, our boardroom pals. Yeah. And I'm I'm so curious about that being our last image of Logan and kind of what you and Jesse talked about for that moment and, and kind of why that's where we leave Logan. It's funny because we've done such a little bit bad sometimes with Brian and his incredible range. We so often saw his character in conflict with with the siblings and therefore we often it was you know fuck off um it, so so often was oh, that's ludicrously reductive but that was uh that was so often what was required of the character so so brian didn't always didn't often get the chance to show that side of the character it's funny the one of the warmest moments i can recall with him was actually a lovely moment in, in the pilot um where he's teasing Hume's character, um, Marsha, uh, uh, about the surprise birthday party that, of course, he knows is happening. Um, and that was actually one of the single warmest moments and genuine connective moments for me in the pilot um, between two characters. And so to fast forward to, um, to when we lose that character, I, I think our aftertaste is one of, uh, you know, a, a character who's cruel uh, and driven by an ambition born of his upbringing, and, uh, and, uh, uh, but not a warm character. And so we didn't often get the chance to dimensionalize him. And there, of course, was this late stage opportunity to do that. And um, also to illuminate an element of Alan's character of Connor to show that, you know, he did have this, it's like this private life that, that the siblings and by extension as the audience kind of blind to um because we didn't pay attention um they didn't pay attention so it, and of course the the poignancy of the siblings as sarah's character shiv i think says in her eulogy he was cold so much of the time and yet when the sun did shine it was warm uh, and and so to see that warmth uh, and the poignancy of their their exclusion from it um that irredeemable distance from it was very poignant in itself to actually to the point where when we shot that scene, I was in floods of tears just watching the siblings' reaction to it, uh, to that loss, uh, to that sense of loss. Um, um, it, it was a very strange day on set where I was completely hijacked emotionally. We, we shot the scene of the dinner, um, and as it was on the same set on a stage day, we had to shoot them close together. So we had a quick one hour to turn it around, Katrina Whaling up brilliant graphics producer turned it around super quick um and um we played it back for the siblings within the scene they'd not seen it before obviously um and we just and we just documented their instinctive reactions to it and i found it incredibly affecting yeah you, we don't see much of kieran's face at all almost because it's too powerful 
um, I feel. All of their reactions is, are so visceral, but his especially. Oh, God, yeah, and, his, and you double down with him because there's Jerry, the lightness of Jerry there, and uh, and his reactions to her were always so powerful with that such a, such a thick brew, isn't it, of emotion between those two characters. Right, and it sets up beautifully him seeing her when they go to Waystar. Yeah, and that shame he feels, yeah. To back up slightly from the finale, and as as the show backs up a little bit from these characters, how do you think Succession feels about New York City? That's a great question. I think, and I suppose I can only speak for myself here, ultimately, Jesse would have to answer how he feels in the writing. I think New York represents a tremendous life force. The speech that Kendall makes in the church, the cool puzzles of life, the, 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 the pulsate, I'm paraphrasing horribly, but, um, but that sense of that pulsing life force which was at the heart and drive of Logan. That, that is also the city, I think. Uh, I, I speak for myself because having moved here, I married a New Yorker and I came to live here in 2011, about 12 years ago. And, um, and I'd never really felt part of the city, um, partly because I spent so much time in Europe shooting Game of Thrones. Um, but when I started to work on, um, when I came to work on Succession, I discovered the city, I found my place in it. And therefore, and as I discovered it, um, particularly some very high echelon parts of it, um, um, I discovered a love for it myself. So I couldn't help but get excited about that pulse, pulsing sense of humanity that this incredible and a million artists have put it much more articulately than me. Um, but I, I, there is a love for that life force uh, that I felt, and, and maybe a little bit of that creeps into the to the show. Maybe. I mean, I think we feel an, another beautiful contrast of you know you feel the life that New York has, and then you see these characters in their black SUVs or or standing out on the street, and they never look more alone in those moments. <laughs> that's so true. That's yeah. They're so uh, they're so not included, are they? Which is yeah. That that's the flip side of being so exclusive, isn't it? To exclude yourself. It's true. I think I've seen more of Hudson Yards on Succession than I have in real life. (laughs) (laughs) Mark, I could talk to you about this show for another hour easily, but I want to thank you so much for your time and and your work and for creating, along with with all the the folks who works on the show, this great visual language to explore characters who we can feel for and they can be irredeemable and both can be true. Thank you, Sarah. It's lovely to talk to you. Thank you. 